I believe that veterans are the key to unlocking America's next golden age. By empowering and influencing one million veterans to transition well and become leaders in their communities, we can unlock our country's destiny and continue to change the world. My name is Bernard Bergen. Alice Krauss served within the special ops community and continues to serve beyond the uniform. Alex threw down the gauntlet when he challenged us all to journey with him to better health and deeper fitness by living plant-fueled. Here to go deep with what it means to be plant-fueled, Alex Krauss. Let's get started. So Alex, my first question for you is, are the CrossFit games in your future? You know, man, I think they are, but at the master's level. I think being able to compete in the CrossFit Games with athletes like Matthew Frazier and wow. our fellow special operations community guy, Josh Bridges, I think those ones might be a little far removed. I came to the CrossFit community a little late, but I definitely want to compete in the Masters division, you know, once I get to that age. So, yeah, it's good. Oh, wow, 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 wow. Well, I look forward to it, and I... Eh, I know you can do it now, but but I don't know if your body wants to commit to doing it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, the mind over body thing, it only goes so far once you start getting up in the years, especially when you're doing something like CrossFit. But yeah, uh, it's definitely attainable at the master's level. Love it, love it, love it. So so listeners, look out for, you know, Alex Cross. I'm, I'm telling you, like, when he pushes himself, you don't want to have the pleasure of having trained with them. Trust me on that. I know that personally. <laughs> so we're going to dive straight into this. Like you've done a lot of hard things in your life, but then you, you know, you've also done them with grace, class, and a perspective that, you know, allowed you to remain who you are, your, your smile, your, your outlook on life. How did you become that person? And you know, how do we become that person who can face hard things, do hard things? You served in some of the most volatile places in the world, but, you know, you're still pretty easygoing, still very approachable. How, how do we get there? Well, you know, I think it, uh, it all began, you know, as a young man, you know, with my family and my mom particularly, trying to get me to help others and, uh, you know, recognize that, regardless of how difficult my individual situation may be, mm -hmm. there's always someone that is going through the same thing or something a little bit worse. And for people who you're trying to help, the last thing they need is for you to feel sorry for yourself because of the situation you're going through. Mm -hmm. It's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help you. If I can help them, it's not going to help your friends or family. I think just slowly over time, as I did more and more difficult things, you know, I just had this understanding that the best way to, you know, stay positive and the best way to be as productive as I can is to have a smile on my face and, and is to stay positive and keep my head up through all of these bad situations and recognize that people alongside you help you throughout the whole journey. And as a cohesive unit, if you are negative, you know, you're really just kind of toxic. But if you're positive, you can be that um, integral piece that makes the whole thing work. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And now, as I reflect, I didn't know that was a part of your philosophy, but now it makes sense because you were all like, I, I always used to be, and I'll just tell myself, I was like, why is Alex smiling? We're not supposed to be smiling right now. You know, I'm like, but you always were not just calm, but truly, like I could look over, see your face and be like, okay, I guess it's not so bad because Alex still smiling. You know, you know that, that always has stayed with me. Like, like I'd always ask, like, why is Alex smiling? Like, this is not fun. But you just be like, hey, we're here. You know, we might as well make the best of it. And that was always something I could just look to you. It's like, okay, if he's smiling, I guess it's not so bad. And just to hear that, to hear your philosophy, to hear how far back it started, it's starting to make sense now. Yeah, it's, um, I can definitely say I wasn't always like that, especially growing up, my adolescence, being half German, you know, I have a, a little bit of a temper on me. Mm -hmm. And in my adolescence, it wasn't always that way. But, you know, as I matured, you know, I recognize that that doesn't need to be, that kind of perspective isn't something that just happens out of 
osmosis. It takes effort and deliberate action to develop that, to go from being something you want to do to then being a habit to then transitioning into something that's a lifestyle. Mm. And, you know, to get to that point, it doesn't take deliberate action. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you talked about how it becomes a lifestyle as you, you know, deliberately make the effort to make the change. And with that, you know, I'll transition to, I think something that I'm very energized about is, you know, you're definitely a vegan influencer and someone who showcases that plant fueled is a real thing. You know, some of us, and I'm talking about myself, you know, we keep our vegan lifestyles very private, close to your chest. And as you, you know, I, I've been living this way for years, but you know, you boldly challenged all of us to join you on your journey to take things up a notch. Why is that so important? Well, I think that the vegan journey particularly is something that needs to be shared and spoken about more openly just because it has so many ramifications and the alternative has the same amount of ramifications, but arguably negative and potentially more sinister, to be honest. And I feel like it's almost a social and environmental movement that needs more attention. You know what I mean? And what I wanted to do with my journey as a vegan athlete is to share that and not only dispel rumors, but also hopefully just open people's minds because you're not going to change everybody. And, and my goal isn't to convert people to veganism as if I'm some vegan missionary, you know, over here trying to convert them to my religion, but just to open people's minds because I know how ignorant I was before I embarked on a vegan journey. So that's why I'm, I'm really open about my choice to be a, a vegan. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, cho that choice to be, you know, more open about the lifestyle is huge. Like, like one of the posts you had recently that I enjoyed, you know, you shared like, look, I still get to eat great foods. And I think people are, at times are just so naturally fearful about what a lifestyle shift means. And I love that you are, you know, at the forefront of telling your story, you know, showcasing that, Hey guys, I still eat amazing food, still have fun. And, um, you know, it's challenged me a bit to be a little less close to the chest just with the way I live. And first of all, you know, my wife's not a, a vegan or a vegetarian. She stares at every time someone puts her steak in front of me and blasts the waiter or waitress and says, do I look like I eat salads? You know, like, <laughs> but I think just like you noticed, I think right now is this real clear shift and the alternatives when it comes to health, lifestyle, you know, overcoming obesity as a country. I think we have one of the answers. And if we can showcase the fun and the camaraderie within the community, that more people would be challenged to just accept or try a different way of life. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing I tell people, you know, especially other athletes or veterans or just alpha type personalities who just like I did a year ago, placed a kind of emphasis on being a meat eater and identified that in terms of masculinity and superiority, what I tell them is that the difference of feeling the way you feel after you eat a steak and how it tastes, if it, even if it tastes good, compared to how good you feel when you're not eating animal products mm. is you know, really uncomparable. And it's not something that I think very many people are willing to sacrifice once they've experienced it. Once you've put away the aspect on the side of you that feels uncomfortable because you're doing something new, once you feel the way you felt on a plant-based diet, it's hard to go back from. And then from there, it's just like operating on a new playbook. The problem with American and Western society in general is that we've played with the same playbook for years and years and years. And so now if I take that playbook and I change it, initially, you're going to feel like you can't adjust the system, that the system doesn't make sense. Mm. You don't know what to do. How are you going to survive? But once you learn the playbook, then you realize that, oh, you know what? These plays are actually not as hard as I originally thought when I had this new playbook. It's just that I've been used to the old playbook for 30 years. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. love that.
And I love that you broke it down to a scripted set of plays because at times we're taught habits or this is how you eat and this is how you approach food. Like my family culture is um, from the, you know, the islands and, you know, my journey was like a total shot to the system. Like you don't eat uh, fish. Like uh, what's wrong with you? And as the tale of the tape reveals itself and the health crises that has occurred within my family, then I get to say, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Because it, it does catch up with us, whether we like it or not, because much of our food source is not as cruelty free. And I remember one person sharing it with me this way. He said, Bernard, I moved here from overseas, and I remember the first time I had lamb from this country, and he was like, something was wrong with it. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, internally, it just felt different. And he was explaining to me that, you know, he, he grew up, you know, in the Middle Eastern cultures, and the animals roamed free and things of that nature. And when he moved here, he just started having health issues when his diet was pretty much the same. And then he said, as he researched even further, he found out that the way animals were prepared in his country was more peaceful than in our country. And then he said, if the animals have fear in them and I eat them, I'm putting, I'm literally putting fear in my body. And I was looking at him because, you know, that was like deep on so many levels, but I was looking at him like, and he was like, no, like, think about it. If you have fear, you can spread it like a disease and a virus. So if the animals are terrified because you, you have slaughterhouses here, then what? Where does that fear go? Right. And that really just always stuck with me. Like, whoa, like, do I want to be the just in fear? <laughs> you know? It's funny, out of that same drawer, one of the reasons my fitness Instagram, I put hashtag ingest life is because when you're eating meat, you are literally, literally eating death. The mm. animal has died so that you can eat it. And I, I understand there's all kinds of different perspectives on it. And, you know, people oftentimes bring up various indigenous cultures and, and I got that perspective. But when you're literally, in, you know, ingesting death, when you change to a plant-based diet, what you are now ingesting is life. Mm. And just the mental, psychological aspect of that I think is strong in so many ways, not to mention the physical aspect. And then the whole plant-based movement and all of the various areas that it affects in our world from health, fitness, social issues, Mm -hmm. environmental issues. If you claim yourself to be an activist, a human rights activist in any sort of way, and you are not identifying how the animal agriculture affects human rights violations across the world, mm-hmm. then I would strongly urge people to look into that. And you might be surprised on how the lifestyle we choose to live and the ability to go get, you know, a double-double from In-N-Out. I know you're up in Seattle, you can't do that. But <laughs> those lovely people in California who can go get In-N-Out, you might be a little alarmed to find out the cost, the worldwide cost mm-hmm. it takes to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. You know what's what's interesting as you said that and just talked cause and effect. You know, I, I went to university at Old Dominion University and, and PETA is in Norfolk, Virginia, and I always remember some of their protests and training. And I think the thing that was always clear for me is that they always showcased what the actual and and, and I use this word super loosely, the farms looked like. You know, like, as we know, they're slaughterhouses, but we ignore, like you said, like that double-double has a cost, like not just the life, but the cost on every aspect of the system. And we're afraid to look deeply enough because I think like many of the, the major documentaries out there is revealing that it shocks you to the reality of, man, I need to change and I need to change right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll be honest, when I first embarked on this journey to health and fitness, a plant-based lifestyle, I was not 
so moved by the suffering of the animals, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, might be mad at me when they hear this, but it's the truth. I didn't change because I thought, oh man, you know, killing an animal for food is just it's so barbaric. I actually was really motivated by the health aspect and mm. primarily, primarily the environmental aspect because I looked at the situation and, and you know, the animal agriculture industry is like a formula, you know, a mathematic formula. And I'm looking at this formula and I'm like, this formula is not sustainable. It doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. And who cares? Let's say I don't care about the animals at all. I at least want to live. I want to survive. I want my kids mm -hmm. to survive. So if you're just like, oh, I don't care about animals, that's fine. But recognize that we're not going to have a place to exist and sustain life and to thrive if we continue on the route that we're going. And animal agriculture, you know, is the big negative deficit on the environment. Right. And I love that you went there. So I'm going to ask and challenge with this. What would you say to the people who are like, well, it won't affect me in my lifetime. What would you say to that type of attitude? I can't say it's American culture, but I, I know, at least from my perspective as an American, we tend to have that outlook on a lot of things. Well, you know, it's not going to happen in my lifetime or, well, I want to enjoy my life while I can. Well, one thing I will say is that being from California and, you know, this will have its own critiques is my whole life, I've recognized that there's a, a fire season right? And mm -hmm. California has fires and this, that, and the other thing. And this year, I think, was it Stanford University did a, you know, one of their psychology classes or something, they did a study on the environmental effects of animal agriculture and its relationship to fires. Because each year for the last 20 years, the fire season in California has become far more intense and longer than it usually is mm. you know it's just really becoming an issue loss of property loss of human life loss of animal life is all increasing and there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between why the fire seasons are increasing in such veracity and mm. animal agriculture so when you say oh i'm not going to see the deficits of animal agriculture in my lifetime well we're only 30 and we're already seeing <laughs> you know, you can close your eyes and not see anything if you choose to, but if you open your eyes, then you're forced to see the realities. And I think that's where the fear comes in. You know, Asada Shakur said, she said, if you're ignorant, you know, and dumb, and I'm paraphrasing, if you're ignorant and dumb, then you just, and you don't know, then that's your excuse. But if you do know, and you are aware to it, and you still choose to do nothing, mm. then you're nothing but a punk. And it's true. People would rather be ignorant than open their eyes and see the reality because it is, to be honest, quite scary. Yeah. And as you went deep there, one of the things that challenges me is that we don't pay attention enough to how it's really damaging everything. Like, like for example, if I look at some of the micro obesity, family members dying, a lot younger than they should or just living with the need to take certain pills or medications every single day. And as you scale out to the macro that you shared, which is there's a causality that comes from the agriculture and farming industry specifically around producing mass amounts of animal-based, you know, food. I know it is scary, but I think what you're showcasing is your strongest platform to advocate is your own life. And you're now preserving the world for future generations and actually helping to improve it. But I think people are still a little bit misguided with something you mentioned earlier, the sustainability of the entire system. Like, can you really sustain it? Like it's, I mean, it's clear. You just do the math. If we stop having major wars, which cuts down on population, and that's where we're heading, and the population continues to grow, 7.5 billion people, 8.5 billion people, 9.5 billion people, 10.5 billion people, and we all want that double-double from In-N-Out Burger, 
then what? Where do we get the meat from? And I remember, you know, I, I tease someone in my family and I have a two adult family, you know, so I'm always like, how do you know that's not cloned? And they're like, well, it's not. But I'm like, it would be easier to clone it than to actually like, so how do you really know what you're putting in your body? And how do you really know where it comes from? He's like, well, how do you know where your fruits and vegetables come from? I was like, it's easier for me to track that than for you to track whatever that is. You know, the idea of cloned meat was introduced to me, you know, probably about a year ago. And at first you hear it and it's funny and you just kind of joke and laugh it off as something that you would see in a science fiction movie. But, you know, it becomes more realistic, you know, when you really do the numbers. And, you know, one thing I think a lot of people can relate to is that if anything in life has taught you, you know, a lesson, that lesson is usually that there has to be some sort of balance, right, for success, whether it's in business, whether it's in fitness, whatever, there has to be a balance, right? You do the yin and yang, all that kind of stuff, all of these ideologies that emphasize balance. And you just have to look at our society and look at, you know, our system and ask, is there any bit of symbiosis in our society between us as humans and the land? How much are we taking from the land versus how much are we giving back to it? Is there a balance? I think the answer to that question is obviously no. So when something is out of balance, what tends to happen? Hmm. It's going to collapse. And the earth isn't going anywhere. So the only people, the only <laughs> thing on this earth that is going to give is going to be us. Right. You know, and, and I know for a lot of people, it seems far-fetched and it sounds like we're talking about some apocalyptic situation, but I mean, we could just rewind the, the clocks back to the eighties, you know, with the fuel crisis. And mm -hmm. a lot of people alive now can remember the lines at, you know, the gas pumps for hours and hours and hours and hours. And people nowadays would think that that's not even possible. There's no way how, what fuel scarcity, that's not possible. But remember it was a lot of people lived through it. A lot of people lived through the great depression. And if we keep consuming and never giving anything back, we're going to find ourselves in a far more precarious situation than those two. And those situations are only going to become more frequent and more severe. Yeah. Yeah, man, you uh, <laughs> made my mind race through every crisis movie that I've ever seen. But more importantly, one of the reasons I watch crisis movies is, you know, I, I lived through a hurricane and my family lost everything. You know, the roof off of our home was ripped off by the power of this massive storm. And fortunately for us, the only thing we lost was stuff. And, you know, our family made it through it. But you said it when you talked about the fire seasons. You said it when you talked about uh, history repeating itself. For me, hurricane season is a season. It's a real season. It comes every year. And there's a way you prepare for that. There's a way you, you approach how you build if you're going to live on certain islands in the Caribbean. And I think what you're reminding us is that as we think about our families and we think about the legacy we want to leave behind, a working planet, sustainable rainforests, sustainable food sources, if we keep just mass producing as we do, consuming at the rate we are, and we keep stripping the land of its resources without replenishing it through sustainable systems, eventually we won't have the natural balance. And in the ecosystem of life, we're a lot weaker than things that's been here for generations. You know, and I think you made that super clear in it. And we really need to think about leaving the planet in, in the right state for those who are coming next and what decisions we can do right now that allows the narrative to continue, you know, because like, as I was running through the disaster films, my brain stopped on the real disasters that those tsunamis brought to Japan. You know, the earthquake that really happened in Haiti that really wrecked a struggling country and a struggling ecosystem. It reflected on the Houston hurricane, you know, that's recent history. And I think or, or what happened in Mexico with the earthquake. Like, we don't have to point a finger far to see that 
if things remain out of balance, as you mentioned, and disaster hits, what breaks down is our lives, our societies, and our communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you, you know, 100% on that point. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to shift the conversation just a bit. You know, now, as a vegan influencer, you follow a lot of the vegan influencers that I follow as well. Uh, Tori Washington on Instagram, Carl Paul, plant-based fit beard on Instagram, Karen Vivi, Miss Cruelty Free Curves on Instagram. Why do you think the time is now for the plant-based community, the plant-based athletes to show up, team up, and just help everyone uh, grow up a bit and really embrace a new way of thinking and a new way of living? Well, you know, I kind of think that um, the time is right for it. You know, not that there's ever a wrong time for movement and activism and truth, but I feel like society in general is primed to receive this kind of message, you know, and, and this kind of knowledge. There is a general distrust that our populace has with in the media, with the government, so on and so forth. And there has been a huge paradigm shift of how activism is influenced by social media and how mm. social media is the primary platform for receiving and spreading information. And these athletes that we follow on Instagram and other forms of social media, when they share their story and they share their journey, it's inspirational. And, you know, as I said earlier, it really opens your eyes to an alternative lifestyle. And I think the more of us that share our journeys, that speak about it, that make a vegan lifestyle more commonplace, the more of us that can actually do that kind of cohesively, I think that the world and society is actually going to embrace that message a little better than maybe in years past. I just feel like the time is right. Yeah. Preparation and execution is all fine and and good, but uh, you can't force a horse to drink. You can only lead it to water. I feel like our society is that horse that is being led to water by the vegan movement. And I feel like our society is that horse that's actually willing to drink on its own without the vegan community forcing water down its throat. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that, you know, again, you mentioned it. It's inspirational. You know, you're just sharing your life. You're sharing your meals. You're sharing some of the activities that you enjoy. And it is resonating with people across the globe because, you know, for the most part, people are happy with some parts of their life. But the bulk of our lives are spent in this body. And when we're mistreating it through what we eat, even sometimes food addictions, then the lens of how we look at other aspects of our life is colored incorrectly. And I love what you said, like the time is right to show that, no, we don't all eat that way. Because, you know, like I reflect at times where no one knew that I wasn't going to eat what was brought out. You know, I would just find some... A soft way of, you know, excusing myself from the table or benching in that, that, that I ate before. And I think now more than ever is a time to say I'm plant fueled. So I'm okay with not eating and still enjoying your company because I don't want to betray what is a must do for my life and my lifestyle. Yeah. And I, I think another important aspect is that just how exactly how you described, I mean, and I, I can remember you doing some of these things when we were deployed is being that vegan that we all know vegans that are like oh you know uh, do you have vegan options you know and kind of have that mentality and that kind of perspective and then it can be aggravating for a lot of non-vegans but I remember you being that kind of classy quiet guy that um, you know you didn't impose your lifestyle on people you didn't try and force people to accommodate you and I think what's happening particularly nowadays is that the narrative of veganism is changing from something that is an inconvenience for people to deal with to something that is alluring and, and interesting to people. Because mm-hmm. you have examples like, you know, Chef Charity Morgan, who I follow on Instagram, she's sharing recipes 
of a vegan double double on her Instagram and it looks delicious. And then she shares the ingredients and then here I went and made it. I served it to people, you know, my friends and family who are not vegan and they couldn't believe that this wasn't in and out burger. Oh, wow. They, and they were just blown away. And it like, you know, it's funny and it gets people thinking, it gets people interested, but it's, um, it's shifted from that nuisance to that interest. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. I love that you're trying and sharing because I think, and thank you for uh, what, what you shared. But what I think I failed at was not sharing enough because I've, you know, always had great food. My dad's a chef and he, you know, he's great at cooking. You know, he would always say, Bernard, you know, send me what you'd like to eat ahead of the Thanksgiving dinner. So he'd make, you know, my vegan options and I could just come and eat and be a part of the family gathering. And I think at times people never knew the food was that good because we didn't, like I said, I, I didn't really showcase enough of the lifestyle, but it's so important to share because we all know someone with a major health issue and a shift in diet would mean a reclaiming, a rebirth, a renewal of life. And I mean, it's, it's such a small thing, but it's such a big thing as you literally become what you eat. And if you become things that can last forever, you look at, you know, redwood trees and things like that. Like when people would tease me, man, you know, you eat grass. I'm always like, yeah, they're some of the lasting and more sturdier things on the planet, you know? So I'm glad to be associated with, like you said, eating life, you know, versus consuming things that bring a more morbid reality to the forefront. And you know, the, the funny thing about that, and I, a lot of times I'll laugh at how ignorant I was. The funny thing about this is that even people who consume meat, they recognize Maybe it's their subconscious, but they recognize that plants are the cleaner way. And you see this with the advertisement of, oh, grass-fed beef, you know, free-range cattle, this, that, and the other thing. And everybody wants to have that grass-fed steak. Everyone wants to have that burger that's grass-fed. And if we identify that a grass-fed animal is healthier than a non-grass-fed animal. Why don't we just cut out the middleman, eat the grass ourselves, <laughs> and now we're at what I would label as optimal level. Optimal level of performance. You're optimizing your mind, body, and spirit. You know what the right answer is. Instinctively, you know that those little green things growing around, those red and orange things, you know, that grow off trees and from plants and bushes and all kinds of stuff, you know that you feel better eating that. Yeah. And you know that naturally that is more along the lines of what, of what is realistic. Because if you want to look at indigenous cultures, anyone that's hunted will tell you that if you're solely dependent on hunting to survive, you're probably not going to survive for long. Mm-hmm. How do we think all these ancient cultures existed for so long or so successful? I can tell you that it's not because the main priority of their diet was meat. Right. And I love that. I remember one time I was a part of a discussion and I kind of took a verbal tongue lashing. I just didn't have the data on, you know, my, my choice to not eat meat. And then someone stepped in who was still eating meat at the time and said, you know, I can name 10 animals that are ferocious that are naturally, you know, plant-based, you know, and he just went through the list and I was like looking at them like, like, how do you know this? And they're like, cause that's what I study, you know? And it was like some of the biggest and fero most ferocious animals. And they got that size from not consuming other animals. And it was so interesting to finally gain that perspective. Cause I had never thought of that, you know, and, and like, I love what you shared because it is, stereotypical us to ignore it like you want grass-fed beef but you don't want <laughs> what the beef eats <laughs> so, so it's very transformational in attitudes and ideas now let me shift the conversation slightly to this because when we're talking to veteran leaders or active duty service members you know many of them maybe are worried that hey you know i clearly heard alex and what he's saying is so 
real for me, but I don't want to lose size. I, I don't want to feel weak. You know, I'm afraid that, you know, I won't be as strong as I was on my old diet. What would you say to that service member, active duty or, or veteran who is just really like, man, I, I don't want to lose my gains. What I would tell them is I absolutely understand, but eating healthy is not the same as being vegan. Mm. And those two are not mutually exclusive because as we've all seen, there are plenty of vegans who are overweight mm -hmm. or plenty of vegans that don't have gains as other vegans because eating healthy is not necessarily the same thing as eating vegan. So if you don't want to lose gains, then you won't because you will continue to eat healthy on a vegan diet. But if you're worried about protein, then I would say relax because on a plant-based diet, every plant that you eat has protein in it. And I personally have seen all of my PRs in every aspect of my fitness go up. Mm. From deadlift to bench press to squat clean, even to my speed. You know, I speed starting to feel like I'm 20 again running around playing football or something on the first group compound. You know, oh man, I feel light again. Wow. I feel light, but yet I weigh more now as a vegan than I ever have in my life. Now, you know, I always hovered around 184 ish. Mm -hmm. Now, as a vegan, plant based, I'm sitting steadily at 192, but I feel light. Every time I get on the scale and it says 192, I, I feel like every scale I'm on is broken. <laughs> Since I've been on scales at the doctor's office, at home, and at the gym, and they all say the same thing, I'm kind of inclined to believe that they're not broken. Right. So you're not going to lose gains by changing to a plant-based diet so long as you continue to eat healthy. And Anybody who has gains that they're proud of, regardless of the type of diet they're on, is eating healthy. You're not eating McDonald's. You're eating your grilled chicken, your broccoli, and your brown rice. Well, you can do the same thing when you go to the plant-based diet. Instead of just eating pasta and top ramen all day, you're going to eat your broccoli, and you're going to eat your avocados, and you're going to eat your fruits, and you're going to eat your brown rice and your beans or your lentils or whatever you want to do, your sweet potatoes. There's all kinds of things to eat that are going to be healthy for you, give you all the nutrients, the micro and macronutrients, and you're actually going to realize that you recover a whole lot faster from those hard sessions you have. Your strength's going to improve. You're not going to feel so heavy, even though you're probably going to weigh the same thing, if not more. And your body fat percentage is going to go down. Come on. So the benefits to a, a plant-based diet, especially as an athlete, are endless. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And you know, I, I just want to offer, you know, to that veteran leader, that active duty service member, like, look, I have had the pleasure of training with Alex. And not only does he know his stuff, he pushes himself. And, you know, here's a little known fact, you know, we are talking to an all army rugby star. So training is definitely a part of his life, you know, and uh, rugby is Man, he made it look easy. So two questions. First, why is training such an integral part of your life, even to this day? And then also when you're done with that, just take us through when you fell in love with the sport rugby. Well, training is part of my lifestyle. I think primarily because your body is your temple and you want to have a strong temple wherever you are in, in whatever facet of life you're observing it through there, whether it's your mind, you know, body, spirit, you want all those things to be strong. So one of the things in that pyramid is the body. And so I want that to be strong. And also, you never know what life is going to throw at you. You never know what opportunities slash challenges are going to be put in your way. And you don't want to encounter those and not be able to overcome them based on a factor that is 100% in your control. Mm. And regardless of injury for one i have two herniated discs and you know nerve damage in my back but that doesn't stop me from training there's always something that you can do to strengthen your body and prepare yourself for what life throws at you 
And also, as I learned from my first team sergeant, you don't want to die tired. So mm. that, especially for the veterans and the active duty members listening, you don't want to die tired. So keep that in mind. And as far as falling in love with rugby, like most of us, you know, I played football, basketball, and baseball growing up throughout the years, and it was always good. Uh, in college, I had somebody tell me, hey, why don't you come out and try out for the rugby team? And I said, rugby, you know, isn't that, you know, basically just free range, no rules kind of football. You just tackle whoever has the ball and uh, didn't know anything about it. Went out, tried out, had no idea what was going on. And luckily, by the skin of my teeth, I was just barely athletic enough to make the team and have the coach say, okay, I'd be willing to teach you something. And then once I started playing, I realized, wow, this is the best sport on earth because it is both the ultimate individual and team sport in the world. Mm. Because in one second, it goes from being a completely solo effort because you can't block. You know, there's no blocking in rugby. So you're attacking the defense on your own to an ultimate team sport where the moment you get tackled, if you're by yourself, if you do not have a team, you're going to get the ball turned over and the other team is going to take it and score. You need every person around you, whether you're playing sevens or whether you're playing 15s versions of rugby, you need every single person on the team to be successful. And, you know, it teaches you so much about life and I absolutely love it. So I would say that uh, I first got introduced to it in college and I really fell in love with it you know, playing in uh, Washington. Wow. Man, I, I, I never asked you your journey before to rugby. I just always know that every time you ask me to play, I was like, not if you're on the opposite team, it's just not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I, I want to go home. But you always had such a, a heart and love for the sport. You played everywhere. We traveled to it, and I was always impressed by that. And as I, you know, was doing some research on rugby, I think the one experience that you can help us with and and I think you you started it where you said it's the ultimate individual sport but the ultimate team sport but describe the scrum for those of us who've never experienced that raw energy in athletic competition the scrum is <laughs> it's one of those strange phenomena that occur when you're not a rugby player you've heard of it you've kind of seen it but you don't understand what's going on as far as you know there's just these grizzly looking men having at each other and it looks like chaos and the funny thing is that that chaos is actually filled with so much minuscule techniques that make it possible that uh it would blow your mind that just even the slightest misstep will cause the scrum to collapse and it's actually in rugby it's actually a penalty there's several ways you can get penalties in the scrums and so what happens is that a scrum is just another way to start the game, you know, kind of like an inbound pass from mm -hmm. basketball or whatever. It's just another way to get the game restarted, and it comes off of a penalty. And it's eight men locked and, and bound together in a cohesive formation, and they are pushing against their opponents that are locked in the same kind of formation, same eight. And... Um, you are bound at the hip, you're bound at the shoulder, everyone is linked together, and it is just a matter of who has the most power and who has the best technique to move their side over basically a center line where the ball would be in game control of the ball. Mm. So if your technique is messed up, you're going to lose the scrum every single time, regardless of how strong you are. Wow. An expert, an expert. Question, do you ever see yourself as a coach just helping people fall in love with the game as well? Absolutely. That's one of my goals or aspirations is to coach rugby at, you know, like the high school level. I think mm -hmm. that would be something, that's something that I am definitely interested in doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought that would be such a good fit because your passion and love for the game and just watching you play as I have, I know that if you don't share that and teach that, man, the world will lose out on, on just the beauty of that athletic competition. Let me switch to, to these questions right before we close. I know you're always approached you know, by people wanting to join the military service. 
And I'm not going to ask you specifically what do you say to them about service, but how do you convince them to join the Army versus our incredible sister branches? <laughs> you know, having uh, some West Point time under my belt, I obviously automatically condemn the Navy. <laughs> I always shoot them down first. But uh, no, I, I push people. I first try to see what they're interested in because mm-hmm. each branch specializes in something and you know has their strengths. But the Army particularly is good because they just have their hands in so many different fields. The opportunities are really endless in the Army. It's, it's crazy to see and compare just how far the Army's reach is in comparison to, you know, some of our sister branches. And, um, you know, like the Navy, for example, they have incredible maritime skills and operations on the water there. No one is better than them in the world at those kinds of operations. But yet they're incredibly limited in other ventures like, um, you know, land engineering. And not to say that they don't have their own expertise. They, they absolutely do. And, and they do they perform that job well. But what I'm trying to say is that their reach is not as long and as far and as long lasting as the Army's is. And so if you're looking at the military, the Army just has so much more for you to do and has more flexibility than a lot of our sister branches. Mm-hmm. Like that. And I think you, you just brought a real perspective to it. It's not really about, like you said, what you can do in each service, but how deep of a reach, how much flexibility do you want your career to have? And, you know, as you were saying that, I was like, man, you're right. Like we could serve all, literally all over the world, perform our MOS at a high level, our military specialty at a high level, and just really enjoy the time in and service. And I think I never thought of the Navy. So I, I didn't even think about how limited I would have been just based on what the Navy does better than everyone else in the world. Um, right. So I'm um, thankful that we met serving in the Army. Now, so you weren't surprised by the Army Black Knights went over the Navy midshipmen last year then? Not at all. <laughs> yeah, the men did uh, an outstanding job. And, you know, we went back to back for the first time in 11, 12 years, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I couldn't be prouder of the boys over there working hard and beating Navy and also having a successful season and um, also beating SDSU and the Armed Forces Bowl. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. I, my, I was a little nervous at certain parts of the game, but uh, I wasn't surprised with their ability, their tenacity. This Army Black Knights team, you know, this year had a tenacity about them and uh, that came out in the Navy, Army-Navy game. And, you know, with the, the winds blowing and the snow pouring down, they did exactly what was necessary and, and they got it done. So, uh, as always, go Army, beat Navy. Come on. It's worth saying twice. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right, I'll I'll close with this. So veteran leaders and listeners, I want you to head over to Instagram and follow Alex's journey to health. His Instagram is journey to health, J-O-U-R-N-E-Y, number two, H-E-A-L-T-H, underscore A-N-D, and underscore fitness, F-I-T-N-E-S-S. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. And I'm telling you, Alex is one of my favorite people on the planet, genuine, humble, plant-based, you know, and, and just incredibly focused. And Alex, I want you to, you know, just close on just the joys of service, of just having served, and also the tale of the tape that serving changes you for better or worse. Well, the experiences you have in the military, you know, in our forces, they're unlike any other experiences you're ever going to have. And uh, I think every veteran can identify with this theme right here. When you leave the military, every single day, not a day goes by that you don't miss it in some facet. Mm. Of course you miss, you're happy to be home and, and not missing out on certain things because of training or deployments or one thing or the other, but you always miss it in some way because the experiences you have there are just experiences that you're not going to have anyplace else. And, um, you know, as far as the notion that serving changes you for better or worse, 
I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, you do change for better or worse. And I think that um, overwhelmingly the changes are positive. You are a natural leader. When you go, when you leave the warrior environment and you go out to the civilian world where the warrior spirit, the warrior mentality, the warrior community is not so prevalent, you are a natural leader of your peers in that environment whether you're an expertise at your job, whether you're a new firefighter or new to a commodities firm, whatever it may be, people will look at you and look up to you because of your experience and because of your natural leadership skills that you have developed and honed over the course of your career. Even, and most especially for those service members who, you know, thank you for your service, did a minimum term, they did one term, there's nothing you know wrong with that and you should absolutely be proud of your service. But even those guys who only did two or three years, four years, whatever it may have been, you are still separated and have been put through a warrior program that very few of our peers on the outside have. And with that, you are naturally a gonna be a leader amongst that group. I love that. Man. I love that. Well, Alex, this was absolutely my pleasure and a joy. And thanks for uh, just making the time to connect and have this conversation. And again, man, I look forward to more of your journey. I look forward to more of your recipes because I am, as you clearly know, the biggest copier of things that work. Um, and um, I think it's, it's just worth saying one more time to the listeners out there that you know, ever since I've, I've known Alex, you know, the smile that he has is genuine. His focus, his, his integrity is genuine. Those things can at times be thought of as cliche. And I've watched Alex serve at high levels and different levels. I've been to war with this man and I've seen the hard things he does with a smile on his face. So I'm pretty sure as he showcases his journey, his vegan lifestyle, He's not going to do it in a pretentious way. If you need help with getting started, if you need strategies, again, follow him on Instagram, send him a message, learn from him. It's very approachable, but he's also no nonsense and focused. And if you just love rugby, he's the person to talk to. <laughs> Thanks, Berg, for having me. You know, uh, you know, I feel blessed to have had this opportunity to speak with you. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been great seeing you again and, and talking to you. And you've been doing tremendous things, you know, with your career. And I tell you what, you couldn't be more of a inspiration to everybody who's watching and listening. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. Absolutely, Alex. Thank you and enjoy your Saturday. You as well, my brother. Take care. You too.